Well, I'd invite you now to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and I'll begin this morning by reading our passage for us. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Verse 27. Paul says this to the Philippian believers, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. A.W. Tozer, the famous American pastor who died in 1963, said this, Little by little, Christians these days are being brainwashed. He said this in 1960s. They're being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so deluded as to be impossible of clear definition. Moral power has always accompanied definite beliefs. Great saints have always been dogmatic. We need a return to a gentle dogmatism that smiles while it stands stubborn and firm on the Word of God that lives and abides forever. What was A.W. Tozer calling believers to do? He was calling believers to stand firm for the truth that is revealed in God's Word. But he wasn't the only one to do this. The Apostle Paul had this same message for the Philippian believers. And we're going to see that here in our passage this morning. Paul is going to tell a church that is undergoing persecution to stand firm together, unified, as they suffer for the truth. You see, we live in a day where the church has become weak. Megachurch pastors and megachurches are packed with people who want to have their ears tickled. We have pastors who won't stand in pulpits and preach the truth of God's Word because they're afraid that they might offend someone. We have pastors who won't take a stand on doctrine, on truth that's found in God's Word. And because they aren't dogmatic on doctrine, then the people are weak in their doctrine and their knowledge of sound doctrine. And when the people are weak in doctrine, they don't live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. And it's a downward spiral. 
You then have pastors and church members who are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, because that is the scheme of the devil, right? To trick you, to get you to believe something that is false. That's what he's after. You have people who don't know what to believe. They haven't been taught sound doctrine. They haven't been taught the truth. And therefore, when a war for the truth breaks out, they crumble. They get taken down. You see, we as believers are in a war. We're in a war. We live in the middle of a battlefield, and the battle is for the truth. In fact, if you've been going through our Bible reading plan, in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's the war. That's the battle that you and I are in every single day. It's a battle for the truth. As one commentator says, Christianity is not a playground. It's a battlefield. It's a battlefield. But too many Christians think that Christianity is about living your best life now. About being happy and living an easy and comfortable life. Many of them think that the Christian life is all about me. That their life is all about what Jesus can do for me. To fulfill my desires and my dreams. It's as if the moment that they come to Jesus, all of their problems are going to go away, all of their troubles will vanish, and they will be able to live the life that they always wanted to live. They just now have Jesus on their side. But that's not at all what the Bible tells us the Christian life is like. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6.10. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Or Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Or 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Or writing to Titus about the elders in the church, he tells Titus that the elders are to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Listen church, the Christian life is a war. It's a war. It's a battlefield. And the battlefield is in the mind. And it's a battle for the truth. That's what we're fighting for. 
But when you take a stand for the truth, what is going to come? Persecution. Suffering. Suffering is going to come because you stand for the truth. And the Apostle Paul was experiencing that as he's writing this letter to the Philippians. But the amazing thing is that when we fight this battle, listen church, when we fight this battle for the truth, we're not fighting it alone. We don't fight it alone. Not only do we have God on our side, but God has also ordained it so that we have brothers and sisters on our side too. Isn't that amazing? We have the church on our side. We have brothers and sisters in Christ on our side to fight with us in this battle. And we're not to fight this battle alone, but we're to fight this battle as a team. It's a team effort. And part of fighting this battle is living out the gospel in our own lives. And that's what Paul has been telling the Philippian believers that they are to do, to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul's been telling that to these believers, and we saw that last time as we've been working our way through this passage. And last week we began to look at five realities to living a gospel-worthy life. We saw, first of all, the conduct of gospel living. That is, what we are to do to live as citizens of heaven and living for the gospel. Then we saw the consistency of gospel living. That is, it's to be something that is lived out daily in our lives. That we don't just live for Christ on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday evenings, but we live for Christ every day of our lives. We're to have consistency of gospel living. This morning we're going to see three more realities of living a gospel-worthy life. The third reality that we're going to see is what we will call the cohesion of gospel living. The cohesion of gospel living. Look again at verse 27 and notice what Paul says there in Philippians 1 and verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, if you notice, after Paul gives the command to live worthy of the gospel, he says, so that. You see that there in verse 27? There's a so that that's there. And in, in the NASB translation, you can see where the so that is at the beginning of where he says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent. But if we were to look at the Greek, the so that actually modifies the last part of this verse. And so we could read it like this. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul wanted to hear that their conduct was being lived out in such a way that they were standing firm in unity for the gospel. As one commentator says, they're living this way has a specific purpose. So that. 
You are to live so that. The purpose of their living in light of the gospel is that the apostle might receive a good report about them. And what would be the good report that Paul would hear? Well, he wants to hear three things about them. Three things about them. Two things that we find in verse 27 and one thing that we find in verse 28, which we'll look at in just a minute. But notice what he wants to hear about them in verse 27. Two things. Notice what he says there. He wants to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit, and he also wants to hear that they are with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. To put it as plainly as possible, he wants to hear that the church is living in unity. That's what he wants to hear. That they're living together in unity. That there's unity around the gospel. That there's unity around sound doctrine. They are a cohesive unit. They're a team. And what is the church to be unified around? Around the gospel. The gospel. Listen, we're on team Jesus. Every one of us. We're on team Jesus. We've been saved by Jesus, and now we are to live unified on one team together for Jesus. Jesus is our coach. Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our commander-in-chief. He's our king, and we are to live for him and him alone. Notice, Paul doesn't want to to hear that they're all just sitting around holding hands and singing kumbaya. No, what does he want to hear? Notice, first of all, he wants to hear that they're standing firm in one spirit. The Greek word there translated as standing firm means to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. There needs to be a firm commitment in our convictions And in our belief, this here is a a picture of a soldier who doesn't budge an inch from his post. Not one inch. He stands his ground and he will not move no matter what the cost is. He's not going to move. He's one who's even willing to sacrifice his own life if that's what it takes. But he's a soldier who is not going to budge. He's going to stand firm. And in standing firm, there's a positive and a negative aspect to it. Think about this. If you are to stand firm, there are things you are going to stand for, and therefore there are things you're going to stand against. There's a positive and a negative to standing firm. We're going to stand for God, and we're going to stand against Satan. We're going to stand for the truth, and we're going to stand against lies. We're going to stand for righteousness, and we're going to stand against sin. And we live in a day where things are getting more and more divisive. Where we have to take a stand against the lies of the enemy he's crafty and he's going to come in and he's trying to get you to stumble 
to fall, to no longer stand firm, but to give in to his lies. Church, it's a war. It's a war for the truth. And we are to take a stand for the truth. In fact, in Paul's illustration of the armor of God, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, four, verse 14, he says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. The first piece of armor that we need is the truth. That's the first piece of armor. He says, get the truth. And what do you do? You wrap yourself in the truth. That's the picture there. The belt. What the Roman guards would do is they, they wore long tunics. And when it was wartime, they would take those tunics and they would tuck them up under their belt. So that they're ready to go out and fight and be in battle. And Paul uses that imagery there. The armor of God. And he says the first thing that you need is the truth. Wrap yourself up in the truth. What's interesting as well is that the belt was the piece of armor that held the sword. That is where the Romans would tuck their sword into. Into that belt. And what is the sword referred to in the armor of God? The Bible. The Word of God. Where do we find the truth? We find the truth in God's Word. And so that's the picture. That's the image that Paul is painting. And he's saying we need the truth. We need to take a stand on sound doctrine. But the wonderful thing about God's plan for us is that we don't have to do this alone. Oh, we don't do this alone. You see, sometimes we might think we're all alone in this. Am I the only one who's taken a stand for the truth? Why won't anybody else take a stand for the truth? And sometimes we think we're the only ones that are fighting this fight, that are in this battle. But that's not how God has ordained it to be. Not only do we have God on our side, but we also have each other on our side. That's why it's important for us to be a part of the church. That's why it's so important to be here on Sunday mornings, to be here on Wednesday evenings, because we need each other in this fight. In this battle, we need brothers and sisters. We need each other. Remember what Paul said back at the beginning of verse 27. He says, only conduct yourselves. This is a second person plural pronoun there. Second person plural. You, you all, yourselves. He's telling the whole church, all of them, you are to do this together. Not just alone, but do it together. And Paul wants to hear this about the Philippian church, that all of them are standing firm in one spirit. In one spirit. Now what does Paul mean by in one spirit here? Well, some think that he means the Holy Spirit. That is, that they are all standing firm together in the Holy Spirit. But that's not what Paul is saying here at, at all. He, he doesn't mean that they're standing firm in the Holy Spirit, but Paul uses spirit here to refer to the believer's human spirit, that they are united in spirit. 
Notice how Paul continues on in verse 27, and he says, with one mind. And so you can see where he parallels spirit with mind. And so spirit here means the human spirit. In their attitudes and their emotions, they are to be unified. We, as Faith Bible Church, are to be in our emotions and our attitudes unified. Unified with each other. One commentator speaks of it here as a a spirit of unity and harmony. There's a spirit of unity and harmony in the church. That's what we need. This is how the church is to be conducting themselves. They were to be unified in spirit. Now, of course, as believers, we know that we're all unified in the Holy Spirit, right? All of us, at the moment of our salvation, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us. Ephesians 1.13 is clear on this. You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So at the moment of our salvation, the moment that God saved us, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, and so we're united in one Spirit in the sense that we're all united in the Holy Spirit. But Paul here is calling for more than that. He's saying even in your attitudes and your emotions, you are to be unified together as a church. We're to be a cohesive body with one purpose, one aim, one goal. And so Paul wants to hear that they're standing firm in one spirit. But he also wants to hear that they're striving together for the faith. Notice the next part of verse 27 there. With one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If we were to think of of a football team, it's football season, so that's where my mind goes, to the football team. Paul had just talked to us about standing firm, right? Standing firm, in a sense, would be the defense. That's the defense on the team. But as Paul transitions here in verse 27, with one mind striving together for the gospel, or for the faith of the gospel, Paul here would be talking now about the offense. And what are they to do? They're to strive together. To strive together. This here is it's a great word in the Greek. It's the word soon athleo. Soon athleo. The word soon means with or together, and athleo means to contend or struggle along with. That word athleo there is the word in which we get our English word athletics from. To, to struggle together with. I'm uh, helping coach Quinn's football team. We had a game yesterday. And as one of the assistant coaches, I run the offense. And as I run the offense, there's 11 guys that are out there. Guess what all 11 of those guys are doing? They are all struggling along with each other in order to get that ball into the end zone. That's what they're doing. And it takes all 11 of them to do it. We don't just rely upon one guy. But it takes everybody, it takes the team to do that. To strive together, to march down that field and get that ball into the end zone. 
It takes everybody. And that's Paul's point here. Listen, it takes the whole church. It takes all of you to strive together with one mind for the faith of the Gospel. We must be struggling together with each other as we're living out the Gospel in our lives. And notice how we do this. Notice what he says here. With one mind. We do this with one mind. That word mind in the Greek is the word suke, which means soul or inner life. It's the seat of our, our will and our purpose. It is our inner man. Who we are in the inner man. And what Paul is calling for here is that not only are we to be standing firm with one spirit, but we are to be united in our minds, in our wills, in our purpose, in our soul, in our inner self. Another way that you could say this is that you and I as the church are to be soulmates. We're to be soulmates who are striving together for the Gospel. That's how we're to be living our lives. Notice there what we strive for. He says at the end of verse 27, for the faith of the Gospel. What does this mean? Well, we saw Paul use this back in verse 25 where he wanted to see their progress and joy in the faith. Back in verse 25, he says this, convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy. Notice that there, in the faith. In the faith, what's he talking about there? He's not talking about their personal faith in Christ, but he's talking about the content of the Christian faith. He's talking about sound doctrine, the truth. And the same is true here in verse 27. He wants them to be striving together for the faith, for the content of the gospel message, for the content that is revealed in God's word. Another way that we could say this is that he wants to see them striving together, listen church, for sound doctrine. For sound doctrine. You see, in order to maintain unity in the body of Christ, we must be willing to compromise. We must be willing to compromise. And what do we compromise? Well, we must be willing to lay aside our own personal opinions, our own personal desires. In fact, that's what Paul says in chapter 2 and verse 3. With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We must be willing to lay aside our own personal desires in order to strive together with one mind for the gospel truth. We must be humble. Humble ourselves and be ready to compromise on our own personal wants and desires. But listen, church, we must never compromise on the gospel. We must never compromise on the truth. We must never compromise on sound doctrine. Never. We must strive together for the truth. But first, listen church, we must know sound doctrine. 
if we're going to strive together for the faith, for sound doctrine, we must know sound doctrine. And then when we know it, we'll be able to stand firm in the truth and strive together for the truth as we're united by the truth. That's what we've been called to do. And as we do that, as we live that out in our lives, we will be then conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. As a cohesive unit, as one church, as one body, striving together for the gospel. Let's look at our fourth point. The fourth reality to living life worthy of the gospel is what we'll call the courage for gospel living. The courage for gospel living. Look at verse 28. He says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Listen, church, when you stand for the truth, you will have enemies. You will have opponents. You will have people who are going to fight back against the truth that you believe and that you teach. We're in a battle. And we're fighting against the kingdom of darkness. And darkness hates what? Light. Darkness hates the light. And Paul knew that. Uh, I mean, Paul had many enemies. Because he stood against the kingdom of darkness and he stood for the light. And so he says here, he says, don't be alarmed by your opponents. One Bible translation says it this way. And do not for a moment be frightened or intimidated in anything by your opponents and adversaries. Not for a moment. Don't be alarmed. Don't be frightened or intimidated by them. Now, remember, Jesus told us that we're going to have enemies, right? Jesus promised us that we are going to have enemies. John 15, 18, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it, hates, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. If you were of the world, you would get along with the world. The world would love you. you do get along with the world, you might want to check your heart to see if you really are standing for the truth of the gospel. Jesus goes on, he says, but because you are not of this world, I have saved you from this world. He says, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Because I saved you, because I called you, because I chose you out of this world, the world hates you. Because we belong to Christ and the world hates Christ, they will also hate us. They will hate us. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we speak the truth and are attacked for it. It shouldn't surprise us. Jesus told us it's going to happen. You will be hated for me. They hated me, and what did they do to Christ? They put him on a cross. They tried to get rid of him. 
Jesus says, look, don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. You will be hated for the truth. And all of us at some point in living for Christ have been persecuted at some level. Sure, we haven't been martyred for the gospel. We haven't become a martyr. But maybe we've been mocked or neglected or cursed at or slandered for our faith in Christ. What Paul is saying here is, look, take courage. Don't be alarmed by this. Don't be frightened by it. You will be persecuted for Christ if you stand for the truth. You will be persecuted. Don't be afraid of this. Don't be frightened by your opponents and their persecution of you. In fact, what Paul is saying to the Philippians is that they are not even allowed to have this happen to them. Don't even allow this to happen to you. Don't even allow yourself to become alarmed or frightened when you are opposed for the gospel. Don't allow this in your life. They can't allow themselves to react in fear to their opponents. Remember 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Who's the them? The world. You've overcome them because you're a child of God. Do you realize that, church? You belong to the king of the universe. You're his. You've overcome the world because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the promise that we have from God. That we've overcome the world. And so don't be alarmed by your opponents when you stand for the gospel. Don't be alarmed by it. Don't be alarmed by persecution. Why? Well, notice Paul gives us two reasons why. Paul gives us two reasons here why we shouldn't be alarmed by persecution. Number one, because persecution is a sign of destruction for them. That is for our opponents. It's a sign for their destruction. That is, listen to this church, that is when you are opposed for the gospel, it is a sign that they are going to hell or going to be judged by God, that they are going to be destroyed by Him. It's a sign of their destruction, of where they're headed. Some believe that Paul had in mind here a picture of a judge in in the gladiator games giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down as to whether or not a gladiator is going to live or die. And for those who persecute believers and oppose the truth, it's a thumbs down for them. They'll die. They'll die in their sins. And their destiny is destruction, judgment, and eternal hell. It's a sign to them. It's a sign for us even to know where they stand when they oppose us as believers in Christ. But there's a second sign, which is a sign for believers. And for believers, it's a sign of salvation. 
You see, for us to endure persecution means that we are standing for who? For Christ. We're standing for the truth. And while it's a thumbs down for our opponents, it's a thumbs up for us. We'll live. We have eternal life. It's a sign that we have been saved. That we have eternal life. It doesn't earn us eternal life, but it's proof that we have it because we are willing to take a stand for Christ and for the gospel. And we know that persecution doesn't earn us salvation, right? We know that. Because notice what Paul says at the end of verse 28. He says, and that too, referring to that salvation, and that salvation too from God. It's from God. That is, you don't get a thumbs up because of anything you've done, but it's because of what God has done to save you. It was God who chose you. It was God who called you. It was God who provided the sacrifice for your salvation. It was God who redeemed you. It was God who gave you the faith to even believe in Him. And all of salvation, listen church, all of salvation is of God. And the only reason that we get eternal life, that we get a thumbs up, from God is because of what He has done, not because of anything that you and I have done. But it's only because of what He has done. You see, Paul is always making sure that God gets the glory. That God gets the glory. And even when we face an opponent and are alarmed by them, and we have courage to stand up for the truth, even in that, we cannot boast. We cannot boast in anything. It's not because of anything that we have done, but it's because of what God has done in us. He has saved us. And He has given us even the courage to stand up for the truth. It's all because of Him. And therefore, God gets all of the glory. And so we need courage for gospel living. Finally, let's look at our fifth point here this morning. And what we'll call the capacity for gospel living the capacity for gospel living. Look at verse 29. He says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This past week I was driving home from the office and just meditating on this verse here. And just thinking about this in verse 29. For you, to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in, in Him. And I started to think about how selfish man is. How selfish man is. The selfishness of man's heart. And how there are Christians today who even want to take credit for believing in God. It's as if they somehow had enough faith in themselves to muster it up to believe in Jesus. 
And if anyone comes along and says, no, that faith that you have is a gift from God, they will say, no, no. I put my faith in Jesus. Yes, you did put your faith in Jesus, but the only way that you're able to put your faith in Jesus is because He granted you the gift of faith. But we're so focused on self that we even want to take credit, at least a little bit of credit for our salvation. But none of us will be able to stand before God one day and say, God, look at what I did. None of us will. We will all bow before the King of Kings and thank Him for what He has done for us. But there are people who are out there that think that somehow they had enough faith in themselves to muster it up to believe in Jesus. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And this verse here is very clear. Paul says it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him. Listen, the moment that you put your faith in Jesus, it was not because you did anything in yourself to place your faith in Him. The only way that you were able to believe in Him was because He granted you that faith. In fact, that word granted there means to give freely as a favor or to give graciously. And the moment that I think that I've done anything to somehow muster up this faith in myself in order to believe in Jesus, it's no longer a grace gift. We've just removed grace from it. But what Paul is saying here and what God is telling us here is that even to believe in Jesus is a grace gift. Your salvation is a grace gift of God. God has given you the capacity to believe. Ephesians 2.8 is very clear about this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one is going to be able to stand before God one day and say, Oh God, aren't you so glad I put my faith in you? <laughs> but we will stand before Him and say, Thank you for the faith that you've given to me. Changing my heart so that I could believe in you. That's how it works. It's a gift of God. In the Greek, that word granted in verse 29 is in, in the passive voice, meaning that the action happens to you. Active means you actively do the action. Passive means that the action happens to you. And in this case, it is God who has acted upon the Philippian believers in this giving. God is the one who acts upon them in order that they might believe. He has granted them the gift to believe in Christ. He has given them the capacity to believe in Christ and therefore then to live for Christ. It's all because of Him. And why did God do that? Why did God grant us the gift of faith in order that we might believe in Him? 
Is it so that we can live our best life now? No, look at what he says. For Christ's sake. It's for Christ's sake. You see, the believers are the object of this divine gift, but the believer is not the goal of this giving. We are not the goal of salvation. Christ is the goal of salvation. It's all for His sake. It's not for our sake that we have been saved, but for Christ's sake. It's to bring glory to Christ alone, not glory to Christ and you. But all glory goes to Christ. We've been chosen by God, we've been called by God, and we've been given the gift to believe in God. But as one commentator says, perish the thought that one would think that what was given was only to believe. No, it is also to suffer. Which is what Paul says at the end of verse 29. Notice what he says there. But also to suffer for his sake. We could read it like this. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to suffer for his sake. And this is the point at which false converts run. This is where they run. This is the point where those who came to Christ so that He could make their life comfortable and easy flee. They'll flee. They don't like this verse. You mean it's a grace gift of God to suffer for His sake? Yes. You mean God gives suffering to us as a gift? Yes. That's exactly what Paul is telling us here. Suffering is a gift from God. In fact, he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted. He says, will be persecuted. If you live faithfully for Christ, you will be persecuted. It's a promise. You know what the symbol of the Christian faith is? It's right here on the front of this pulpit. It's a cross. It's a cross. What happens at the cross? Suffering. Suffering. And Jesus told us that we are to take up our cross daily and follow after him. That means we must be willing and ready to suffer for Christ's sake every day of our lives. It doesn't mean that we will, but it means that we must be ready at every moment in our lives to suffer for Christ's sake. And when we do encounter suffering, that is actually a gift from God. You realize that? So often we get into suffering, and what's our prayer? Lord, remove this suffering from me. Lord, take me out of this suffering. The only way to get out of suffering is to go through suffering. And that suffering is a, it's a gift from God. We should rejoice just as the apostles did in Acts, right? They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer for Christ's sake. That should be our attitude. 
because suffering is a gift from God. But you might ask, how is suffering a gift from God? Well, what did Paul just tell us? What does suffering do? First, it gives assurance that we belong to Jesus. It gives us assurance that we belong to Jesus, that we have been saved by Him. I will often ask people who struggle with their assurance of salvation, have you ever suffered for Christ? You ever suffered for Him? Have you ever been rejected for Christ's sake? And when they answer yes to that, it's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. God is giving them assurance of their salvation that they are willing to even suffer for Him. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. And so suffering gives us assurance. But suffering also is a gift because suffering brings us closer to Jesus, right? Doesn't it do that? The result of suffering is that it brings us closer to Christ. That when we go through suffering in our lives, where do we run as believers? We run to Christ. What greater gift is there than that? Than to be at the feet of Jesus. What a gift. What a gift that suffering is. One commentator says, suffering for the sake of the mission doesn't mean Christ is abandoning you. Rather, suffering is a sign that He is with you. So often we think that when we go through suffering, when we suffer for the truth of the gospel, we think that Christ has abandoned us. No, we need to realize in that moment that Christ is with us. That He's there with us. And what a gift to know that Christ is with you as you trust in Him through suffering. You see, people won't suffer for someone or something they don't believe. They won't. But our suffering is a gift from God that assures us of our relationship with our Savior. Gospel living not only means believing in Christ, but also suffering for Christ. And that's what Paul was experiencing, and that's what he knows the Philippians were experiencing as well. That's why he says there in verse 30, notice what he says there, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul suffered for Christ and the gospel, and so were the Philippian believers. They saw the suffering that he went through, and when he was beaten and thrown in prison in Philippi, when he came to preach the gospel, he suffered for it. And now he says, and I know you're experiencing the same suffering as well. Basically what he's saying is, welcome to the team. When you live for Christ, you're going to suffer. And why did they suffer? They suffered because of what they stood for. They stood for the truth. They stood for sound doctrine. They stood for for 
Christ. And as we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, the same thing will happen to us, church. The same thing will happen to us. But what does God tell us? Don't be alarmed. Don't be frightened by it. Be faithful and live for Him as we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. In closing, Charles Spurgeon said this about living for the gospel. He said this, I would not give much for your religion, that is your beliefs, unless it can be seen. Lamps do not talk, but they shine. A lighthouse sounds no drum, it beats no gong, and yet far over the waters its friendly spark is seen by the mariner. So let your actions shine by your religion, by your beliefs. Let the main sermon of your life be illustrated by all your conduct, and it shall not fail to be illustrious. May we live the conduct of our lives out consistently for the gospel as we strive together in unity with courage and a willingness to suffer for our Savior and for His truth. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the gift of salvation. Lord, if it was left to us, None of us would believe. Because all have turned aside. Everyone has gone his own way. All of us have sinned against you. But Lord, we're great, grateful that you have worked it in our hearts that you have given us the capacity to believe in Christ. We thank you for that wonderful, gracious gift of salvation. And Father, we're thankful for the, the gift of, of suffering as well. And we pray that as we, as we live our lives in obedience to the gospel and stand firm in the truth and strive together for the truth of the gospel as we suffer for it. Lord, may we, may we rejoice in that, knowing that it is a gift from you. Father, I pray that you would change our hearts and help us to realize and understand these great truths that we have heard this morning. Help us to be a church, to be a people who stand firm in sound doctrine, that we would learn the truth, that we would desire the truth, that we would love the truth, and that we would strive together, unified with one mind for the truth, so that you would be glorified in our lives. Help us to take this word here this morning and live it out for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.